We live in scary times. The threat of terrorism is in our backyard. We, we hear about mass shootings in the media, it seems almost weekly. Our own government is, is, is making policies that have become increasingly aggressive against Christians. Not to mention that the threat of, of nuclear attack and, and environmental catastrophe, economic collapse, global pandemics, and asteroids. We fear the unknown. We fear things. We fear powers that are beyond our control. And so where do you go to find comfort in times like these? Well, I used to go to, to drugs and alcohol to escape my problems. Others go to the pursuit of, of pleasure, sexual morality, entertainment, video games, and, and some even to suicide. Some just go to sleep. But all of these things bring cold comfort. The situation that, that we face today is really not too dissimilar for, the, for what it was for the people of ancient Israel. No, they weren't concerned about asteroids or weapons of mass destruction, and they didn't try to hide their fears by, by accessing internet pornography or, or by watching or binge-watching TV programs on Netflix. But, but the fears and, and the concerns that they faced were really, in, in many respects, parallel to the things that, that we face today. Human nature really hasn't changed very much in the last, or at all, in the last 6,000 years. The threats that, the, that ancient Israel faced were from pagan nations, bent on, on destroying them. So they, they faced a, a constant and imminent threat of attack, but it, it wasn't, their, their primary threat wasn't, wasn't even really from attack from, from those nations, it was from the worldview of those nations. It was from the belief system of those nations. Their temptation in the midst of, of fear and of trouble was, was to go to idols, to the gods of those very people that wanted to destroy them. Now, now the things that we run to for, for comfort aren't, aren't they're not little, little statues in the corner that, that we burn incense to. But, but we still make sacrifices to our idols in the, in the forms of, of time and money, of mental and spiritual energy. The, the things that we face as idols really are, are, are functional gods, the, things that we seek comfort from instead of seeking comfort from the one true God. So the problem that Israel faced and, and the problem that we face really, really aren't that different. But the solution for Israel is identical to the solution for us. The, the solution in the, in the case of fear and the, and the solution in the case of temptation is God himself. It's God himself, the God of the Bible. And so Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, form an introduction to Genesis, and they form an introduction, as we saw last week, to the, to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of the Bible. But, but they aren't just an introduction to the Bible, as important as that is, they're an introduction to God himself. They're an introduction to the God of the Bible. In, in this passage, on to, to chapter 2, verse 3, 
The first week is, is laid out for us. Rising to a, creation is rising to a crescendo on the sixth day when, when, when God determines to make man in his own image. Then the seventh day, God, God established a pattern of rest for us even modeled it for us. Now, God didn't, didn't need to rest, but, but he laid that down to, to show that the command that he was giving us. And then in Genesis 2, verse 4, we have the, the, first, the, the first toledote of the, the, the generations of the heavens and the earth. It's, it's the first real section where, as we saw last week, it's 10 toledotes or 10 sequences of these are the generations of, and, and 2, 4 begins that sequence. So again, with this passage, and here specifically in verses one and two, we have an introduction to God himself. He is the subject of the first verb in the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. Now, it really shouldn't come as a surprise to us that God is the subject of the first verb in the Bible because the Bible is really about God. It's, it's God's book, it's, it's, it's history, and it's his story. The name that is used for God here in, in Genesis 1, 1 is, is Elohim, which interestingly is a, it's a, 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 a plural word with a singular meaning. We'll talk more about that possibly next week. But this word that for, for God, Elohim, is used 35 times in this first, in this first section. And then it's only in, in chapter 2, verse 4, that the transition is made that, the, that the, the God's covenant name, Yahweh, is introduced. So 35 times we see the pattern here of, uh, of God said and God saw and God, sorry, God said, God called, and God saw. God is the almighty doer of creation. He is the doer of the whole creation. This is where we get the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. God is the only maker and the only ruler let me read Genesis 1, 1 and 2 for you again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God is the autonomous creator. He alone can create creation. He is the creator of everything that exists. He is, he is before it, he is distinct from it, and yet he is intimately involved with it. And we'll see that in this passage. This is how God can be known. God reveals himself to us in his creation. He reveals himself to us here in history. Our stories have a beginning and they have an ending from, from a human sense. But, but God's story has really no beginning and no ending. In the beginning, God already was. He was there before there was a beginning. He is eternal. He is holy. Yet we can know him and relate to him personally. This is the message of the Bible. 
creation testifies that there is a creator. Romans 1.20 says his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So when we look again, as we talked about with the children, when we look at creation, it points to the fact that there is a real creator. There is a personality behind his creation. It's the God of the Bible. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we see God creating matter and space and time. This expression that the heavens and the earth includes everything. It's, it's everything that is made, God made it. In verse 2, we see three parallel phrases that describe the earth at this time. It was without void and form. It was, it was a wasteland. It was empty. And darkness was over the, the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And, and so at this point in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, the, the creation was uninhabitable. It was empty and uninhabitable. But over the course of six days, as we'll see next week in that first week, God transformed it into something that is able to sustain human life. Three days to make the uninhabitable earth productive and then three days filling the uninhabited earth with life. And then, and then finally, the, the seventh day, the, the day that, that God set apart to, to rest. So in this, this initial period, in, in here in verse two, the earth w- was in darkness, but not darkness in the, in the sense of, of spiritual darkness, not darkness in the sense of evil, but, but literally dark. Light did not yet shine. The deep here has significance in the, in the Pentateuch narrative. In the flood, God uses the deep to destroy the wicked of, of the entire earth apart from Noah and his family. And God also uses the deep in Exodus to deliver his people as, as, he dis, as God destroys the armies of Pharaoh using, using the, the Red Sea. Moses sings of this in, in Exodus 15. If you go ahead to the end of the Bible, in in Revelation 21, we hear these words, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was was no more. So notice that that in the new heavens and the new earth, there were no oceans. Now I have to admit that when I first heard that, I was disappointed. And I was actually disappointed. I thought that that would mean that there's, there's no scuba diving and there's no surfing in the, the new heavens and the new earth. And, but I mean, it shows my, I guess it showed my, my, my theological uh, immaturity because it, it's, I won't be disappointed on that day. I guarantee that. But, but the, sea, the sea really represented chaos. Represented chaos. And so what you have at the culmination of all things is God in, in, in the new heavens and the new earth bringing final and eternal rest. To creation. You can see this, this uh, also in Revelation 22.5. Not only will the sea be no more, but, but night will be no more. There will be no need, there there will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. In the new Jerusalem, there, there is no darkness because God is its light. And so what we have here at the, the close of the Bible is, is John using the, the, the 
the language of Genesis 1-2, revealing that in the eternal blessed state that God will have completed his work of the new creation. And so forms a really, uh, just the perfect close to the Bible. And everything that takes place between Genesis 1-1 and the end of Genesis 22 is really that story of, of how God is working out redemption history. And so again, here in, in verses one and two of Genesis chapter one, we're introduced to this God, that this almighty God. And that's really what's, what's wrapped up in this, this name Elohim. It's, it's, it's God's power in his creation. Well, verse two continues. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This lifeless earth was, was empty, waiting for God's command. And the only thing moving was God's Spirit. God's Spirit. God was, was providentially caring for the condition of the earth and really preparing the way for, for His creative word. And here, His divine care is, is referred to as hovering. This is the same word that, that's used for, for an eagle that, that hovers over its nest. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses describes the Lord as, a, as an eagle hovering over its nest, caring for Israel in the wilderness, in the wasteland of the wilderness. So there's a, there's a, a parallel, there's a theological significance to what is happening here. Deuteronomy 32, 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, um, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. But then with, with verse, in Deuteronomy 32, 12, this, this God of the Bible is then contrasted with the idols of the nations. Using the covenant name of God, he says, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Those, those pagan gods are, are, are mute idols. They're, they're, they're impotent. They're unable to help in any way. But God is able and God is faithful to help his people. So, so that's really the, the, the testimony of the beginning of creation. And there, there are parallels. You, you may have read about, about parallels in some of the, the creation stories of the surrounding nations. It's, it's in vogue right now to, um, to emphasize the parallels between Genesis and pagan mythology. Some have referred to this as parallelomania. There, there's two notable ones, Egyptian mythology and Babylonian mythology. In the Egyptian creation myth from Heliopolis, there, there's a parallel of, of land rising up out of the primordial sea. And that's, that's pretty close to, to what we read about in what we can see in, in Genesis 1 and 2. But that's where the similarities end. Because in, in, this, in this Egyptian mythology, the, 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 the Egyptian pantheon is presented as being the result of, of sexual immorality. Likewise, the, the earth and the sky are depicted as the product of the immoral relationship between two of the, the Egyptian deities. I don't see that in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Or, or also the, the Babylonian creation myth known as the, the Enuma Elish. Here the earth is, is said to have had its source again also in the primordial waters. And the heavens and the earth are, are, made up of a, are made from a watery mass. But again, that's where the similarities end. That mass is considered to be the carcass of the dragon goddess T. 
Tiamat, who's slain by Marduk, who splits her in two, creating the heavens and the earth from her dead body. I don't see that in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. The, the, there, there are superficial parallels, but they're not at all the same. There are those who try to deny the biblical account, saying they emphasize the similarities and say that the writer of Genesis drew from these pagan myths and then incorporated them into this Genesis account. But in this case, it's exactly the opposite. And a big part of the reason why the creation is, exp- is explained in, as, it, as it is in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in fact, in the, the rest of this, of this section, is, is to be contrasted with those pagan nations, with the pagan religions. You see, the people uh, of Israel were surrounded by enemies. Again, enemies who, who believed in these, these pantheons of these, these pagan gods, and they believed that their gods were, were localized, that their gods were, were, were localized to certain regions. And this was, this, there was an influence on Israel from this. We, you see this, just one example is 1 Corinthians 20, 23. When the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills, and so, we are, are there, so they were stronger than, than we, but let us fight them on the plain, and we shall surely be stronger than they. So they're saying that, well, the, the reason why Israel was able to beat us is because we fought them in the hills, and their gods are, are hill gods. But seeing as they're hill gods, let's go, let's go fight them on the plain, and you can read on in, in 1 Kings 20 to see what happened to, to, the, the, king, um, to the king of Syria there. They were, they were routed. They were completely destroyed. God is not just the king of one isolated location. He's the king over all of his creation. So, so there, there's no doubt that the, the Genesis account is anti-pagan. But we do have to be careful not to take this too far. Some scholars recast the Genesis account merely as a, as a polemic, and there are polemic elements. It's, it's a, it's a, it is an argument, but they use that, they say that it's a, a polemic in order to undermine the historicity of the text. They say that it's merely a polemic to show that, that the normal rules of, of logic and narrative don't apply. So we don't have to believe what the Bible says about the creation account. But, but the point here is, this is not really just written as a, as, a, as a response to pagan nations, but to establish the foundation of trust in God for the people of God. G- Genesis is written to, to help the people of God to know who he is, and so to be able to trust that he is faithful. No matter what the surrounding people believed, Israel could trust their God because he is the almighty creator of everything and the sovereign king over everything. That's the point here, that the God of the Bible is the creator, establishes a foundation of of who he is so we can know who he is and so that we can trust him for who he is. And, And the same is really true for us. Now, we don't have to contend with, with Egyptian or Babylonian creation mythology. But there's another creation myth that, that is ubiquitous. It's, 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 it's everywhere with the pagan people surrounding us. It's evolutionary mythology. 
This, this business of evolution is, is in the water that we drink. It's we're, we're surrounded by it. If you can't turn on a, 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 a television documentary without hearing millions and millions of years. It's in our schools. It is, it is everywhere. I was a Christian for over a year before I, before I ever heard that anybody actually believed in a literal creation account. And it just shows how, how I mean, I also had not heard the gospel until just prior to, to getting saved, but it, so it shows the, 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 the waters I was swimming in. But, but really, that, that's true for all of us. This is, this is the, the reality of the culture around us. This is what they believe. But when you think about it, the mythology of evolution is more far-fetched even than the mythologies of ancient Egypt or Babylon. It's more believable that, that creation came from a god killing a, a, a goddess dragon, cutting it in half and making heavens, the heavens and the earth, that is more believable than believing that the earth and, and all that is in it made itself out of nothing. It, it's more believable to, to believe that, that Marduk made the heavens and the earth out of, out of Tiamat than it is to believe that the earth and all that is in it came about as a result of a big bang that the order that we see around us is a result of, of a mere, of, a, of, a, of an explosion. It's far more believable that, that in, in the, the Egyptian pantheon is, is far more likely than the fact that, that cells brought themselves together and, and that life evolved out of non-life. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It takes more faith to believe the testimony of evolution than it does to believe that there really is a creator God. But we know that, that it's not just, a, we don't just believe in, in, we don't believe in Marduk, we don't believe in the, the Egyptian pantheon, we believe in the God of the Bible. So if you talk to an evolutionist, they're, they're likely to appeal to, to the evidence now, I, I don't get, I will talk evidence with, with evolutionists, but I won't get hung up on the evidence because, because we, we have, really we have the same evidence before us, but because of their presuppositions, because of, of their worldview, because they, they deny, they, they deny supernat the supernatural working of God in creation, no matter what evidence they have before them, they're going to deny it. We have the same evidence, we just have a different interpretation of the evidence. So when they talk about the evidence, you can ask them, what evidence? And, and they'll probably go to the fossil record. Well, you can say, okay, what evidence in, in the fossil record? Darwin, when he was developing his theories, expected that the, the, the fossil record, they, they'd only just been, been dealing, begun to deal with these things, they expected the fossil record would be full of transitional species. Yeah, transitional species is, is something that is, you know, partway between, between a fish and an amphibian. Or between an amphibian and a reptile. Or between a reptile and a bird. Or between a, or between a bird and a, and a mammal. Or, it's, it's, or between a bird and a, and a I don't know what came, what suppose it came next. You could probably tell them, Justin. But, but, but the fact that, the, 
There, there is, they appeal to this, this so-called evidence, but there is no evidence. You understand this. There is not one example, nothing. There is not one transitional fossil in the entire fossil record. Zero. Nada. One example that was supposed to be a, a transitional species was a coelacanth. You might have heard of the coelacanth. Supposedly, a coelacanth was something between a, a fish and a tetrapod. It's supposed to have gone extinct 65 million years ago. Well, that was a great theory until a, a coelacanth turned up in a fish market in the South Pacific. And then they've, they've now, since that, they've actually discovered lots of coelacanths. And the coelacanth is identical to what was supposedly there 65 million years ago. No evolution. No evolution. So they have to scramble and then re rethink their, their theories in, in order to, to try to adjust. But, but again, there is no evidence of, of a species changing into another species. They, they believe that, an evolutionist believes that on faith. And they deny the God of the Bible. They deny the God of creation because of their faith. It's a, it's a different, it's, it's still faith. They appeal to science, but it's not science, it's faith. Because science is, is real, it's testable, it's observable. But they've not observed any of these things, they've just, they've, they've made theories based on what they can see in the here and now. So you could, you, could, you could talk about also the geological record. And in a, 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 geolo a geologist, an evolutionary geologist, is going to talk to you about the, the layers of sediment that, that formed over hundreds of millions of years. And you, and you, can, you can talk to them about the way that the, the, the flood actually accounts for those layers being put down very quickly. You know, even here in our own backyard, we have Layer Cake Mountain that was, that was actually developed in a, in a very brief period of time through volcanic activity. You, you can see those layers that were formed over a short period of time. Or, or you can show them pictures of, of, uh, of trees that, that were fossilized, of um, trees that are, are standing upright through layers of, of strata that supposedly fell down over hundreds of millions of years. It, it's, it, it's, again, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that, they, that they're, they're looking at the same things, but because of their faith, they have to deny the God of the Bible. One prominent local pastor blamed Christians who believe in creation for the number of young people leaving the faith. He did that from the pulpit. Well, first of all, those who truly, who, those who, who supposedly left the faith were never really part of the faith in the first place. But one reason why many reject the Bible is, is not because, creation, because Christians hold to creation, but because Christians reject creation. Because these, these young people have never been taught that the Bible provides a rational explanation for the creation of all things. And so what happens is they enter universities and colleges where the Bible and the God of the Bible are constantly under assault. And so they, they, they hear the word denied and because they're not grounded in the word and especially because they don't have faith and they're not, because they're not born again, they, they walk away from their parents' faith because it has been proven to them that God's word is not trustworthy so they conclude that God is not 
trustworthy. But it's not just evolutionary teaching that, that undermines confidence in God and his word. You know, if, if you, when, you, when you're struggling with, with the, the death of a loved one, does evolutionary, does evolutionary theory offer you any comfort? They're just, they're just another animal, just evolve like everything else. They're, 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 their life leaves, their, their body dies and just decays and that's it. It's all over. Does there, is there any comfort in that? None whatsoever. Just like there, there's no comfort in, in believing in, in the false gods of the Egyptians or the Babylonians because those, those gods were a creation of man and were just really really just reflected man's weaknesses. They, they, these these were, were very sinful. These so-called gods were sinful. There, there's, you couldn't trust those gods, but you can trust the God of the Bible. But again, it's not just evolutionary teaching that undermines confidence in God and his word. We, we also have, even within evangelicalism, we have apparent compromises between evolution and creation that really do the same thing. Apart from evolution, there, there are four main views, and, and, and some of these are really sincere Christians. And I, I have friends, close friends, who, who hold to, well, particularly one of them, the, the framework hypothesis. But, but as we'll see, it, these, these theories do not really give an adequate answer. There's the gap theory. The day-age theory, again, the framework hypothesis, and the other option is, is a literal six-day creation. It's really helped by, by R.C. Sproul's um, outline of these views. I'll just very quickly go over them. The first that I mentioned is the gap theory, and it was, it was popularized by the, the Schofield Reference Bible, and it, it holds that there's a gap between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. And so the Schofield Reference Bible translates verse two, and the earth became without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And so, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I can't, um, I can't explain for you why this is, is, why this is not a valid um, change in, in translation, but, but scholars who, who do know explain that there's, there are ways that that word can be translated became, but they don't fit here. It doesn't fit here. But what this doing when, it's, when, they, when they, they make this became without form, they're, they're making verse one refer to original creation and then they say somewhere between verse one and verse two, there was a catastro catastrophic collapse. And so the, the original good creation became chaotic and dark and fallen. And then it's then after this period that God is said to have, have recreated the universe over a period of perhaps billions of years. And if, if you, as we'll see this, is this runs contrary to the creation account. The scriptures never allude to, a, to the destruction of a creation prior to Genesis 3. There is no pre-fall fall. There's one fall. The next is the, is the day-age theory. Um, and in, in this theory, each day of Genesis 1 is an age. Appeal is made to 2 Peter 3.8. One day in the Lord's sight is like a thousand years. Now, I have actually, in the, in the past, I did a, in a paper, as a very young Christian, did a paper on this and, and tried to, to adopt that. But that's pulling that verse out of context. That is not saying what, we, what it's, it's purported to say here by these day-age theorists. 
You also have expressions like in the days of Noah or in Abraham's day that, that can refer to open-ended periods. The, the Hebrew word that, that's translated day here can mean something other than a single 24-hour period. Um, but, but this theory then suggests that, that, that these, these paragraphs each day, the first six days, are, they could be millions and millions of years, the period over which God did these things. But, but this view ignores the immediate context as well as the wider biblical context. It ignores the fact that, that with each day in Genesis 1, uh, it, there's, a, there's an evening and there's a morning. The first day, they are discrete units of time. An evening and a morning, the first day. An evening and a morning, the second day, and so on. But, but it also really doesn't, it, it doesn't, uh, um, it doesn't really help you when it, when it comes to the, the problem of they're trying to incorporate evolutionary thinking because, because this is not how, how evolutionists propose that, that, this, that this proceeded. So it's an attempted compromise, but it really doesn't do anything to, to help the case at all. Another is the framework hypothesis. As I said, I've got friends who, who hold to this view. It was developed by Nicholas Ritterboss. And it holds that the, the opening chapters of Genesis are in a literary form that is different from the, the, is unique from the rest of the, the rest of the, of the, of the narrative of Genesis. And it's, it's a unique combination of poetry and narrative. And, and there is, there are textual forms that, that are unique. We'll be dealing with the, with the um, we'll be dealing with the genealogy shortly. And the, and the genealogies are very clearly they're very clearly historical. They have historical, they have a theological purpose as well, but, but there is a history that is being communicated there. And so, so Ritterboss holds that because it's a, this, this unique combination, because it's poetry, it's not a historical narrative of the when and the how of creation, but it's, it's a, a, um, a framework of, of the drama in, in seven separate acts, that each day is a framework. One notable uh, theologian, Bruce Waltke, is a, is a proponent, major proponent of, of this theory. Um, I was enrolled for a class of his at, at Regent several years ago, and, uh, and I didn't know that, that this was his view, and, um, but as he, as he was teaching this, that it's poetry, and so we don't, we don't take it literally, uh, I approached him naively at the break and, and asked him, I said, well, well, what do you do about the rest of it? And I said, well, that's a can of worms, isn't it? I didn't ever go back after the break. R.C. Sproul says that you must do a great deal of hermeneutical gymnastics to escape the plain meaning of Genesis 1 and 2. It, it, you need to accept Genesis 1 and 2 as it is presented in the scriptures. And these views that the, uh, are, are an attempt to, to rethink Genesis, it's not because of, uh, because of new, of, their emphasis is not because, they're not coming to this because this is what the Bible says, but they're questioning it because of what they, they hear in science and it's influencing their thinking. We need to be so careful. We all have have presuppositions when we approach the word of God and, and we should have presuppositions about, about the inerrancy of God's word and the authority of God's word but, but we need to be careful that our, our presuppositions don't, don't dictate our thinking but that we let God's word speak for itself 
We let God's word speak for itself. I had a conversation with, with a friend, and this friend actually holds to a literal, uh, literal six-day creation account, and, and he said that, that, but though that's not the point of the passage, the, the, the how and the, and the, the when is, is really not the point of, of Genesis 1 and 2, and he's, he's right. It's not. The, the main point of, of Genesis 1 and 2 is, is not to detail the how and the when. It's, and if your focus is on that, you've really missed the point. The point is, is not the fact that, 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 that God, when God did it and how God did it, but the fact that God did do it. That's the main point, and that was the point for, for Israel, that the one who made everything is God, their God, Elohim, the covenant God, Yahweh, that this is their God who made everything. But in answer to, to my friend's point, that, that even though that the when and the how is not the main point, the question we need to ask then is, but is, did God do it in the way that he said he did it in his word? So again, the, 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 the when and the how aren't the main point, but, 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 but is God's testimony about himself trustworthy? There's implications. If, if you are going to deny the, the, or try to, to explain away using what Sproul, Sproul talks about as hermeneutical gymnastics, then, then you are undermining people's confidence in the Bible and you are, you are undermining their confidence in the God of the Bible. I remember a few years ago when I was preaching through Joshua 10, and with the passage from, uh, from verses 12 and 13, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. The sun and the moon stood still. The moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Just those few verses, they're nestled in, in the middle of Joshua saying that the, the sun stood still or more, more accurately that the, the, the earth stopped rotating. And I began to think about the physics involved in that. If all of a sudden the earth stopped spinning, what would happen to all the water and the oceans and all the lakes that would, would slosh out and create tsunamis? As I said, I began to, began to grapple with, well, the, the hows and the wits and the whys and, the, and all that, but, but that's not the point. Did God do that? Did God stop the rotation of the earth or did he not? That's not the, the, the fact that God stopped the rotation of the earth is not the main point of Joshua 10. It's a very small, minor point there. But if we deny that, we are denying God's word. We are setting ourselves above God's word in judgment of God's word instead of letting God's word sit in judgment of us. And so we ask then, did this happen the way God says it happened in his word? Well, how does the rest of scripture present the Genesis account? You can look at many other scriptures that, that detail the Genesis account. And for example, just let's turn your Bibles, please, to Psalm 136. Psalm 136, and just a few verses here, verses five to nine. Verse four, I'll go there. Um, to him who alone does great wonders, 
For his steadfast love endures forever to him who by understanding made the heavens and his, his steadfast love endures forever to him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever to him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever the sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever the moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. God is the creator. And this is tied to his faithfulness in verses, in verses 10 to 12. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and so on. And then again in verses 23 to 25. It's he who remembered our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. For he who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. The rest of the Bible treats Genesis 1 and 2 as and, and 3 and 4 and 5 as a historical account. What about Jesus? How did Jesus view this? Well, in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees challenged him over the issue of divorce, how did he respond? He quoted Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And he also, verse 2.24, uh, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They'll become one flesh. Jesus viewed this as historical. He also viewed, uh, he also based his, his understanding of the end from the beginning in, in Mark 13, 19. For in those days, there'll be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. The Bible treats Genesis 1 and 2 as part of the inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, inspired Bible. It doesn't take those two chapters out because it's uncomfortable with evolutionary theory. These attempts to undermine the clear teaching of Genesis 1 and 2 undermine the whole Bible. And again, it sets man above the scripture. Many years ago, when I was a new believer, uh, I, went, I went back to the only church that I knew. It was the United Church in, in Ottawa. And, and the minister there gave some, some well, some very ungodly, some very sinful advice that, that, that he, will, um, he will stand before God in judgment of if he does not repent. But he was, he was on a, a television program and, and was, was talking about the Bible. And, and he referred to the, the Bible, if I remember correctly, he had, the, he had a, a stack of, of history and, and science textbooks and things, and he, he referred the Bible as, as being first among equals amongst these other textbooks. Friends, the, the Bible is not the first among equals. The, the Bible is in a class all its own as the word of God. We must submit to the word of God as the word of God. Matthew Henry says that the first verse of the Bible gives us a sure and better, a more satisfying and useful knowledge of the origin of the universe than all the volumes of the philosophers. The lively faith of, of humble Christians understands this matter better than the elevated fancy of the greatest minds. 
man in his foolish wisdom tries to understand and in the course of it explains away the God of the Bible. But when we understand who he is according to his testimony of himself in his word, we become wiser than the wisest of those in the eyes of the world. According to the biblical presentation of origins, the barren earth is made productive by the divine royal word which grants and ensures productivity and life. And this theologically speaks to any present or future threat to God's kingdom. Any future threat, any present threat, the, the things that you fear for yourself or for your children or for the, for the future are all answered. Even in just these first two verses of the Bible, by faith, God's people affirm their trust in God's irrevocable rule. So it's true for ancient Israel and it's true for us. And so Genesis 1, 1 and 2 introduces us, introduce us not primarily to creation, but to the God of creation. Donald Gray Barnhouse says, there is no peace for the mind apart from the knowledge that back of all those around us, back of the stars and sun, the earth and all that's in it, back of our own bodies, fearfully and wonderfully, wonderfully made, there is the mind and will of God. When we know that he created all these things, we can know that he has an eternal purpose. He who began a good work will complete it. And so we can know the God of the Bible through the word of the Bible. But we can especially know the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, the son of God become flesh, taking on human flesh. This is how we can ultimately know who God is. The things that, that Genesis talks about in shadows, we see in the fullness in the incarnation of Christ. Second uh, Corinthians 2.4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I remember talking to a professor about, about the way that, um, th that even when Jesus was a baby, he was upholding the universe by the word of his power. And even on the cross, he was upholding the universe by the word of his power. I, I said, I think something snapped in my mind or something maybe that was snapped got put together as I began to see who the God of the Bible is, who my God is in a deeper and more profound way. Friends, our only hope, our only hope in, in this world is the God who created this world and is sustaining this world by the, by the word of his power. Let's go to him together in prayer.